0: There's a lot of money out there finding good money. That is money that will stay with you, money that will be patient as you go through your learning curve and your growing pains, which you will. That that kind of money is not as common as just money, period, but it is out there to be found. And so if if people have ideas and they want to start a company, I would encourage them to do it. <music>
1: Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. I'm sitting here this afternoon at my house online with my guest, Peter Duncan, President and Chief Executive Officer of Microseismic. How's it going, Peter? Well,
0: you know, I've had better days, better weeks, better months.
1: Amen to that. (laughs) Before we get into it, I wanted to ask the audience, like I always do, leave me a review so I can read it on the air. Love giving you guys shout outs. Love hearing the feedback. You can do that in iTunes, and a link will be provided in the show notes as well. Peter, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Well, actually,
0: I'm a geophysicist, and I actually didn't start off as a geophysicist in the oil and gas industry, but I became a geophysicist at a very young age. I grew up on the east coast of Canada, and I went to a hard rock school that is a school that specializes in teaching mining geology, among other things, forestry and mining geology and things like that. I got a summer job after first year university, I was 18 years old, and working in the field, I was exposed to geophysics in the field. And I thought, this is perfect. It's like having toys for big boys and you're treasure hunting out in the woods. What what could be better? So I went back at the end of the summer to my department head and I said, I want to be a geophysicist. And the department didn't actually have a, a stream, a program for doing geophysics, but they were very forward-thinking. We're talking 1970 here. And they said, we'll make a program up for you, which is a hybrid of geology and physics. And it'll be the first time we've ever done this. They actually ended up designing the program based on it eventually. And I went off and I became a geophysicist and I went to graduate school. And then I went to work for Shell in Alberta in their mining division doing kind of electromagnetics it was an outgrowth of my phd work and it was fine but shell kind of employed me as a mining geophysicist and then like a lot of the oil companies in the in the late 70s they all decided in one fell swoop shell chevron exxon they all decided to get out of the mining business they weren't making enough money and so i was actually running a field project and shell called me up and said we hereby declare that you are an oil and gas geophysicist, and we're going to put you in charge of offshore seismic, offshore Nova Scotia. And (laughs) in all of my career, I had done just about every kind of geophysics except seismology. And so now I was Shell's chief doing seismology offshore Nova Scotia. And in fact, In a very exciting turn of events, they put me in charge of the very first three-dimensional seismic shoot that Shell ever shot anywhere in the world.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
0: And it had a lot of high profile. I got to interface with a lot of really neat scientists from The Hague, where Shell had their head of research, and from Houston, where Shell had another large research office. And it was an intense schooling in how to do seismic. I only lasted within the Shell family for a couple of years. What happened was a processing company based in Houston, the company that in fact had won the contract to do the processing and analysis on this very first 3D. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse to go over and run their 3D processing shop, first in Calgary and then in Houston. And it was was scary. I will tell you the day I quit Shell, well, the night before I had my letter written up and I put it down on the bedside table and I said to my wife, "You know, this is really difficult and if it's this difficult for me to leave shell after only working for them for six years, you can rest assured I'll never leave you." And so she thought <laughs> she sort of thought that was funny, but to be put in the same well never mind. But I did <laughs> I did get up the next day and I turned in my resignation letter and I have to say what I told people later, was that it was kind of like jumping out a window into the darkness and finding you were on the first floor. There was lots to do and the move to the United States just opened a whole new set of horizons for me. I'd only been down here about a year working for Digicon when Mm -hmm. the chairman of Digicon asked me if I'd like to start up a new company for them that would be a little bit downstream of doing seismic. It was to to integrate engineering and petrophysics and geology with 3D seismic, which was perfect because I've always been kind of a generalist. And we did that under Digicon's auspices, started the company called Exploit Tech. And I don't think you'd get away with that name today, but anyway, it was Exploit <laughs> Tech. And we, we ran under the Digicon title banner for two years. And then Landmark Graphics bought us to be kind of a wet lab, a demo oil company that would have access to all of their latest tools as they were developing them. And for us to be able to feedback to Landmark what was working and what wasn't working, and at the same time to be sort of a demonstration to oil companies, little oil companies particularly, of how they could use the tools that Landmark was developing to help them with their exploration and development. And we did that for a couple of years until the oil business crashed yet one more time in 1992. <laughs> and so in 92, myself and my number two at, at Exploit Tech and this, the president of Landmark Graphics, the founding president of Landmark Graphics, the three of us got together, raised a little money and sort of did a leveraged buyout from Landmark of this wet lab of this, this group of oil finders and turned it into an oil and gas company we thought, you know, been long enough on the on the sell side of the table, let's get on the buy side of the table. So we started this little oil company, raised a little bit of money, drilled some wells, had some success. And in 1996, actually took that little oil company public, which was a great event, a private airplane flying around the country.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so.
0: Twice in two weeks, doing 55 presentations. It was exciting and completely wore me out completely. We'd walk into... Yet another meeting, I'd sort of go to sleep and the guy who was our front man, he'd do the first 10 minutes and then he'd say a key word and I'd pop my head up and do my 15 minutes. And then we'd be ushered out of the office and away we go. We we were successful in going public and it was fun. Did that in December of 96 and got completely wiped out when the oil business took yet another crash in 99. People talk about oil being... Low priced. Well, back in 99, I think we were getting 80 cents an MCF for our gas and about a dollar ten or something like or I guess no, that wouldn't be right. It'd be about eight dollars for our oil.
1: Well, at least it wasn't negative.
0: So. It wasn't negative. <laughs> Although I must say some days I felt that I was paying for every dollar, every barrel we found. So we kind of ended up in 99 selling that out through a series of transactions to another public company. And I went back away from being an oil man on the buy side of the table to the sell side, back into technology, which is really where I'm comfortable. And I worked for a little bit with a guy who had been a founder of Landmark Graphics, Royce Nelson, famous chief his, in developing his company along the lines of virtual reality, actually immersive virtual reality. And we did that for a couple of years. I did that for a couple of years as a technical person, technical contributor to that company. And then I moved over to a really neat idea, sort of a something that presaged what we're doing today in terms of machine learning. It was actually a pattern recognition company that had started off doing genomic work, had developed a commercial tool for looking at photographs and identifying objects, And they had the idea, one of their board members was an ex-Chevron vice president. They had the idea that they could take this pattern recognition technology and apply it to seismic data, teach it what an oil field looked like in the seismic data, and then set it loose to comb large volumes of data as a first look at some of the tens of thousands of miles of spec data that exist out there to high-grade opportunities, uh, prospects that we could then home in on and perhaps find things that had been bypassed. And it really was a pattern recognition problem that people had been doing in their head. Now we were teaching the machine to do it. I guess nowadays you would say it was a supervised learning tool. And this is back in, what, 2002, 2001. So we were uh, we were on the edge of things. We were so edgy, in fact, that it, it kind of went belly up. <laughs> So I sort of wrapped up that project from my point of view. I left them. And I was casting about and ran into a professor who had been a seismologist, uh, sort of a pure earth seismologist, earthquake seismologist all his career. He was a brilliant fellow, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, who had decided, decided in his old age that he needed to monetize some of his thinking over his career. and had these ideas to do something called micro seismic monitoring of oil fields and fracks, hydraulic fracturing. I spent a couple of weeks with him up at his mountain retreat, going through his technology, going through his writings and listening to him and walking with him across the top of his mountain home. And I decided that that this thing might have some legs. I wrote up a business plan and sent it off to some people who are smarter on the business side than me. And I said, look, I'm not sending this out to ask you to put money in. I'm sending this idea out, this business plan out to see whether or not you think it has legs. And they came back and they gave me some some fine-tuning ideas about how I might pursue this project. And then having made those changes to the business plan, I sent it back to them and said, okay, now this time I'm asking for money. And I was successful. I raised a little bit of money. And it's funny, actually, I mentioned hydraulic fracturing. But in the list of all of the things that I could do with this technology, I made a list, put it in the business plan. And the last one on the list, I said I put hydraulic fracturing and I put a big red X through it because I said Schlumberger does this and Halliburton does this. And I only want to pursue things that I can be number one or two in the business. So we'll do all the other sorts of things co2 sequestration monitoring exploration in mountainous areas we'll do all those things other things that this professor taught me we could do with the technology he had all oh, engineered i wouldn't say invented but engineered well it wasn't long after we hit the marketplace that the shale gale kind of took off and micro seismic monitoring became something that people were talking about to really understand how their fracks were were working and within four years of starting the business, we were profitable. And 99% of our business was what I had put a big red X through on day one, and which only shows you when you go out to the marketplace, you, no matter what your preconceptions are, if the market says do this, then that's what you end up doing. So Microseismic began in 2003, we are now, I guess, 17 years old but we started out by you asking me how I'm doing. And I will tell you that right now there isn't a whole lot of micro seismic monitoring going on in the domestic us. So most of my, most of my staff is furloughed. I'm furloughed. I'm sitting in my home office. It's not only, well, I'm sitting in my home office perhaps because of COVID-19, but a lot of reasons COVID-19 hitting the oil and gas demand, COVID-19 causing prices in oil and gas to go down such that all of our clients have laid down their rigs and aren't really, they're shutting in their wells. And COVID-19, because we've closed the office too, so that nobody's passing the disease amongst each other. So it's kind of a trifecta of why I'm sitting in my office, in my home office right now.
1: And you're in Houston, right? I am. Yeah, so we, you've got until, what, June 10th to be sitting there anyhow.
0: <laughs> yeah, the offices are, the offices are in fact, so slowly opening. I did run in this morning and sign some checks for some bills to make some of our vendors happy. But for the most part, I'm working from home. And I will tell you, it's actually working pretty well. I miss the social interaction. I know we all do. But yeah. I think if I were starting micro seismic Inc up today, I would probably aim to have maybe 20 to 30% of the office footprint that I eventually had. And and let a lot of people work from home.
1: Yeah. I mean, right now people are yeah, scared. There are people that are, are hungry for that social interaction. So uh, yeah, I understand. I'm letting everybody else try their out first before I head out now. Um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> think, think that works out. <laughs>
0: I think you're you're very wise to do that. But certainly certainly it is scary times on a lot of different fronts and I don't know, there may be some overreaction, but I'm waiting to see whether this slow opening up is going to cause a spike in the number of cases. I I just don't know.
1: I think it will, but I also think that that's because there's not as many people getting tested as they were before. So those numbers will will ramp up because the people that are now getting tested because of the more sites being open and such. Sure. There's got to be a
0: sampling issue there. You bet.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's in,
0: in, in the oil and gas business. Well, i mean in the in the mining business, we used to say that you always found mines at the end of the road, and that was a sampling issue that's where you looked and in the oil and gas business, you know they say oil is found in the minds of men because people come up with ideas, and sure enough, you drill well and there's there it is when we go out and test, we're bound to find more cases
1: yep, absolutely. so if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be based off of your experience?
0: What would it be? well, one thing. One thing that I learned reasonably early on that I had probably had a misconception about, I've started what three companies now raise money, significant dollars, millions of dollars, several times now. And I I have found that raising money is easier than I imagined. Now, it is important. I'll add a caveat there that money, there's a lot of money out there finding good money. That is money that will stay with you, money that will be patient as you go through your learning curve and your growing pains, which you will, that that kind of money is not as common as just money, period, but it is out there to be found. And so if if people have ideas and they want to start a company, I would encourage them to do it. I guess another thing that I learned when I worked for Shell, it was a matter of you depended on the company. You had this large company that had this reputation of looking after you. And so you could be dedicated to the company, but expected the company to be dedicated to you. And when Chung got out of the mining business, a lot of people were let go. And I think I learned then, and that was reinforced in later years, that at the end of the day, you work for yourself. And you owe your company, your boss allegiance You owe them the best work that you possibly can do. But at the end of the day, the person you have to depend on for your continued employment is you. You should never forget that and never doubt yourself. I actually watched a movie this weekend, yesterday, maybe the night before. It was a silly movie, but there was a statement in it that is kind of a restatement of a lot of what these self-help books say. And it made a lot of sense to me, particularly in the current environment. The statement made by one of the lesser characters in the movie was... It isn't falling in the river that will kill you. It's staying submerged.
1: Oh, that's so good. It is good.
0: You got to get up and swim no matter where you find yourself.
1: Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. What movie was it? It was Extraction. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that out. It's violent. <laughs> it's <laughs> a
0: scampist. It's not the sort of thing for the faint of heart.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> I think I can handle it. <laughs> that
0: statement was probably the highlight of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so don't go don't go looking for much more message than that. Okay.
1: <laughs> oh, that makes sense. All right. So, what book influenced you the most, and why? What
0: book influenced me the most, and why? Golly, over time, I guess. You know, there was a book that had a big influence on me that I I don't even know when I read it. It was a book that I read probably when I was in high school. And I think, although I could have it wrong, it was a science fiction book. I think it was Arthur Clarke, but it might not have been. It might have been one of the other science fiction writers of that ilk. But it, it was a short story, really. It was a short story about this fellow who went to school had got to the point where he was being tested to see which high school he would go to. And all of his friends were selected to go to the the local high school that, that everybody went to. And he wasn't allowed. He was sent to this other school and it damaged him. I mean, he felt that he was second class somehow. And all of his friends went to this high school where they were all given calculators. I mean, it's old enough. Their calculator was a rare thing. Then Mm -hmm. And they were all given calculators and and they were learning how to do math on a calculator. Whereas at his school, they weren't allowed to have calculators. And of course, the moral of the story was he was being, because he was smarter, he was being taught not how to use a calculator, but how to make calculators and how to write the programs and how to do the tough stuff that the run of the mill people, the people who'd passed the test and gone over here to be applications people, later they would be using his stuff, kind of a revenge of the nerds in the time when the nerd word hadn't even been invented. And that had a huge effect on me, actually. Just the whole idea that there is kind of a common path, but taking an uncommon path that might be a little harder, but more fundamental could be important to you and perhaps to things bigger than you. Shoot. But other than that, I mean, Hermann Hess's Siddhartha, what was an influential book of me. I read two-thirds, I guess, of Magister Ludi by Herman Hesplit. And that taught me what I didn't want to think about in future. Lately, I've been reading Peter Zion, who's kind of a world thinker and talking about the sort of changes in the global strategy and how the global political, geopolitical environment is going to develop over the next few years. I find that extremely interesting and insightful. I'm not sure how it's affected me because it's it's only been recent. A book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Well, if you've heard of it, but it kind of traces the development of Western culture over the centuries. Really interesting, fascinating book. I'm kind of free basing here, but a book that did have a big influence on me was was a book by Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize physicist. And back in university, we all labored over his Feynman lectures, Feynman diagrams for understanding science. But he wrote a series of books. He was a character. And there's a book he wrote called Surely You Jest, Dr. Feynman, about some of his insights to life and his attitude that had a huge effect on me.
1: Well, that's great. That's great. I wish you could remember the the name of the first one you were talking about. That was really interesting. With the high schoolers. The
0: short story, yeah.
1: Yeah. If I can find
0: it, I'll send you an email with it.
1: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I might even Google it. Might come up with something through Google. So what's your most used business tool? My most used business tool?
0: <laughs> so this is going to sound wrong or silly or, or egotistical, but the tool I use most in business is my ability to... Listen and speak to people.
1: Communication.
0: Yeah. And probably, you know, you asked about advice earlier, and I think that's probably something that I should have said. I think that one of the most useful things, one of the things that's been most advantageous to me is that I began doing public speaking and debating, thinking on my feet, listening and answering questions. I began doing that at a relatively early age in high school and carried on through university and graduate school. And the opportunity to present ideas and try to make it clear and understandable, it's been fundamental in all of the companies I've started, fundamental in raising money, fundamental in taking companies public, fundamental in making sales, taking new technologies. Because first I was brought down here to try to help the American junior market in the oil and gas understand 3D seismic. So even in those early days, back in the 80s, I was touting new technology that people weren't necessarily familiar with, trying to make it understandable and use that as a tool for, in general, sales. Okay, I've always said I'm kind of a frustrated professor, but perhaps just maybe a little bit too... Greedy, (laughs) (laughs) avaricious to have lived the life of a professor. But certainly communication, was I'd have to say, is the tool I use the most.
1: Excellent. Who's your most respected competitor?
0: My most respected competitor, there there was a company we're talking about in the microseismic world. It was a a company that had started up in saint toul France, called Magnitude. It was run by a brilliant man named Christophe Maison. And they eventually were sold to CGG and became part of the CGG, well, the Baker Hughes family eventually. But they're the ones who I thought did the most technically astute work in my field.
1: That's awesome. I was going to say, your your French is great, <laughs> except you're from Canada, so that kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Since that's also, that's the national language, you all have two of them, English and French.
0: Yeah, and I, I in fact, grew up in New Brunswick, which is the second most French province,
1: Quebec being okay. the first. Quebec, yeah, correct. All right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you got that down pack. Well, I'm from Louisiana, so... <laughs> Well, you, yeah. speak, you speak some
0: French there too, but it's a little yeah. it sounds a little different to my ear.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So what would you say is your most important lesson learned? The most
0: important lesson learned. Well, wow. That's a pretty broad question. In terms of starting up companies, I think what's been an important lesson, maybe two that I mentioned. One is always be honest with your clients. So if you're pushing new technology and things aren't going well, you need to fess up because they will be supportive if you fess up and and not try to pull the wool over their eyes. And I think along the same lines, always be honest and forthright with your employees. Trust them, trust them to understand. And I learned from that fellow that I started the oil company with back in 92, A big part of his philosophy was to have everybody in the company be a stockholder. So, very generous about giving stock to employees as options, of course, not giving it, but letting them earn it, but getting them all involved and, and giving them a chance to have upside. And because they're stockholders in the company, you then have an obligation to be honest with them about what's going well and what's not going well. But taking that attitude, I'll tell you, we did this micro seismic, we raised a couple of rounds of venture money, and then we did a partial liquidity event with a PE firm back in 2010. One of the things that I required was that the employees we had at that time, they were allowed to sell a certain fraction of their options into the deal and cash out to take some money off the table. And to see the effect of, for example, my secretary, my assistant, she was able to take that bit of money and buy a house for cash and to see the look on her face the joy the the expression of, of independence of gratitude of of really being something yeah that made it all worthwhile
1: yeah that's something that's something I would ask if you're hiring but I know you're not <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, kidding aside, honesty really will push not the envelope, but the trust of the people around you. So I find that to be incredibly honorable. So why is your role now important to the future of oil and gas? Well,
0: I have an opinion on that, but I have to tell you that I'm not sure that it's terribly broad. When I got into understanding fracks, and, and I told you at first I wasn't going to do anything with fracs, didn't know how to spell it. But we have, over the last few years, spent a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time, and looked at a lot of hydraulic fracturing. And in fact, hydraulic fracturing is not new. It started back in the late 40s. When we got involved, and I say we, I mean myself and the rest of my community here on doing seismic monitoring, we very, very quickly showed the engineers that the models that they were using, the thought process they had about what's going on underneath the earth when they're fracking the rock, was dead wrong. And they were, it's just that the product they were developing, the product they were producing, was worth enough that it didn't really matter that they were dead wrong. But these shales, which have been a tremendous gift to the United States, to the world, in terms of, remember, we were running out of hydrocarbons in 1973, and now we have enough hydrocarbons that we can go forward and try to explore some of these other energy sources we have a little running time rather than ending up in a crisis because we would be, if we turned off oil and gas today, we would be in crisis.
1: Oh yeah, so, absolutely.
0: So we've got some running room here through these shales, but we're typically producing only 7 to 10% of the hydrocarbons that are in the shales because it's still very inefficient. And we were making a lot of headway before this turn- downturn in the last six months we're making a lot of headway into understanding how the rocks break, how they're giving up their hydrocarbons, how we can keep adjacent wells from interfering with each other, how we can raise that recovery factor maybe, maybe to 20%. And imagine if, if it's 7 to 10% now and we could raise it to 20%, then that's maybe as much as three times the hydrocarbons available to us from the same number of wells that we're not we're talking eight. no more impact on the environment, same impact, but getting three times the energy out for about the same amount of money. Huge, huge. Unfortunately, the drop in price and not necessarily, I mean, this the development of this technology has been bumpy two steps forward, one step back. It isn't necessarily viewed as need to have, but rather as nice to have by probably 70, 80% of the industry. We spent a lot of time thinking about this. And at the end, oh, maybe five years ago of doing an in-depth thinking of this, me working with a a coach, I actually worked with this thought coach and I found him really great at at pulling stuff out of me. We came up with a, a banner phrase for the company that said, better frack, better world. And what we were aiming for was cheaper, abundant energy for everybody by doing this fracking more efficiently. And I firmly believe that the technology that micro seismic monitoring community developed could enable that could enable that. but right now <laughs> there ain't no fracking going on so we are, <laughs> we're just kind of biding our time and unfortunately a lot of our competitors have been shut down. I say unfortunately because I can't service the entire market. there is a need for this technology you ask, What do I think is important, or how could, what is our role that could be important for the future? I think when they get back to exploiting these resources, they really, really do need the kind of technology that we and the rest of us in our community provide.
1: Well, you know, what's funny is I've actually noticed in my background, because you don't know, the audience does know is my background is regulatory compliance. So I used to get all the drilling permits, all the completions permits. There's been a surge in that lately. So there's hope. There's hope.
0: Well, you know, I don't think I would have lasted in this business the 40 years I've been in it if, if I weren't a glass half full kind of guy.
1: <laughs> you sound very logical and realistic, so I think you're doing okay. I think I think you're doing okay, <laughs> so what's your favorite podcast? What is
0: my favorite podcast? You know, there's a a podcast that I listen to out of Canada, oddly enough, called Quirks and quarks, and it's really? it's kind of a science magazine that is very broad-based. It's been going on. It was started by a a famous Canadian scientist, biologist named David Suzuki back probably in the early seventies. It's now for the last, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years, hosted by a guy named Bob McDonald. And he has a good writing staff and they, they cover earth science and, and astrophysics biology, climate change, the whole gamut. They're usually little. It's once a week, CBC, 10 minute. It's an hour long program, 10 minute sort of articles. And I listen to that when I go work out in the morning. I put on my headphones and get my dose of science.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So thank you for joining me, Peter. If people wanna reach out to you and or get to know more about your company, how can they go about doing that?
0: Well, we have a website, it's microseismic.com. And one of the things that I've always had on my website is a little button up in the right-hand corner. No, no, it might now be under contact us, but it says, Ask Pete or yeah. Ask Peter. <laughs> and it's it's a button that people can punch on and they can send me an email. It can even be anonymous. And I put that there in the early days so that if we had we go out in the field and we we go on people's land. Or I have employees. I wanted people to be able to get to where the buck stops and say good things or bad things, whatever they want, and do it with a name on it or not. If you can't find that, you can just write to P. Duncan at com, And that gets to me too.
1: Oh, perfect. And then I'm going to also include your LinkedIn profile for people to reach out to you that way so the spam bots don't get you. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's Events on Deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the Events on Deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering it has been free we want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home so please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events we are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound Tune in next week for another
0: intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders podcast, a production of the Oil &
1: Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.